Recording in progress. All right. A formal welcome to Torah Studies, our weekly look at the Torah portion. Torah portion this week is Vayikra. This is the beginning of the book, hey, Marnie, beginning of the book of Leviticus, book number three of the Torah. And we have, wow, what a class tonight. I'm telling you, if you guys came for a class, you're going to get a class. You, you're here for a class, you're going to get a class. Not only a class, you're going to get a first class class. Oh, first class class. This is not just, this is like if you have like a lot of points and you get to go into the lounge, you know, like the fancy schmancy lounge, fancy schmancy, like the really nice lounge that where they serve the champagne. Do they have such, I don't know, do they have France, such lounges? Oh, Air France? Lounge. Air, they serve champagne there? Do they really? Even, in economy. Even in, oh, I didn't know this. I didn't know this. That's unbelievable. What is it? Oh, because French, it's like, yeah, yeah we, and we have Coke. Hey, Matt. Oh my gosh, it's a party. All right, guys, grab some babka. All right, so here's the deal. By the way, guys, everyone's invited to join in person. I'm just saying, you yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Don't attack them. Hold on, don't attack. <laughs> no, I think, I think our in-person crowd would love to see you all in person, but I understand not everyone is around. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, tonight's class is a class. This is a first-class class. It's, we're going to talk about wood. Wouldn't you know it? We're going to talk about wood. And um, what was that? What was that show? Woody Woodpecker, right? Right? Hey, man, good to see you. All right. So, so the class is about wood, but let's get there. How do we get there? So here's a bit of an overview of the third book of the Torah, because we're starting this week, book number three of the Torah. So we had Genesis. What does Genesis talk about? Right? Help me out here, guys. What does Genesis talk about? The beginning. the beginning. Boom. The beginning. We talk about creation, creation, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, all the good stuff. Okay, great. Book of Exodus. What's the theme? Exodus. There you go. The Exodus. Right? We got slavery in Egypt. We got Exodus. And then, of course, Sinai, golden calf, building of the tabernacle. Boom. Done. Book number three, Leviticus. What's it about? Huh? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. Good. About the sacrifices, primarily. There's, a, there's other stuff in there, but a lot of it is about the sacrifices. Laws. Laws, that's for sure. There's a lot of laws, and they're, they, they revolve around the Mishkan, the operation of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is heavily, uh, which, which is heavily focused on the sacrificial rite, R-I-T-E, the sacrificial service known as the karbanot. The carbonate. Um, okay, so that is the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is also known in Hebrew as Sefer HaKarbanot, Ha-Karba, which means the book of sacrifices, and it talks a lot about sacrifice, especially the beginning, right? The beginning of, this, uh, of the book, which is this restorer portion, man, we got the burnt offering, we have the peace offering, we have the sin offering, we have the guilt offering, we got all these offerings, right? All these different types of animal sacrifices and meal offerings that are detailed. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal with the, with, with the offerings. If you have these offerings, you have lots of sacrifices, what do you do, right? What do you do with the animals? Should we get, uh, should we get graphic here? What do you do with the animals? Right? Number one, well, hold on. First, thing, first step is you got to get an animal. Ne- next step is every sacrifice, what do you do? You got to shack the animal, right? You shack the animal, slaughter the animal. I mean, there's other stuff involved. There's a placing of the hands on the head of the animal, okay? Then, 
you got to feed them at some point, but not not after. Well, right then, then you shack the animal, and then parts typically parts of the animal are burned on the altar, right? Okay, that's the way it is. And some, depending on the sacrifice, you know, some sacrifices, some categories of karbanot, known as the ola offering, the burnt offering, the whole thing, the whole animal is burnt on the altar. Other offerings, only parts of the animal are burnt on the altar and other parts are eaten. Depending on, on, the, on, the, on the specific type of offering is what is done. But here's the point. Here's where I'm go- going with this. If you have a lot of stuff burning on the altar, right, what do you need? Fire. How do you have fire? Wood. You need wood. You need lots of wood. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at text 1A. Let's start right away. Matt, if you don't mind jumping right in. Listen, Matt is a satisfied customer. He's enjoying the babka. You too can enjoy babka. Right? We're selling the babka, my friends. This is a hard sell. Okay, Um, let's go. Uh, Let me pull this up. Hold on one second. Let me get this up on my computer so that... Everybody's on the same page here. Okay, everybody here has a copy. And let's get... All right, this is page 153. This is going to be text 1A. I am going to share this. Matt, take it away in 3, 2, 1. The descendants of Aaron, the Kohen, shall place fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Okay, there you go. So the Torah tells us, this is from this week's Torah portion, the seventh verse of Leviticus, Leviticus 1, verse 7. Seven verses in. We're already talking about the wood, right? There needs to be fire on the altar. Why fire on the altar? Because you got to burn the, the offerings. And if you want fire, you need kindling. How do they say it in the South? Kindling? Kindling. Kindling. <laughs> they should. I don't know if that's how they say it in the South. I have no idea. Kindling. I've, I've actually gotten pretty good at y'all. Get, I'm getting there. Anyway, kindling, right? And, and all, this, all the actual Southerners are like, you think you're going to You sound like a foreigner. Anyway, it's fine. So um, fire on the altar requires wood. So there's an arrangement of wood. Now, if we stop right here, if we stop right here, and I ask you a question, how important is the wood? What would you say? Uh, scale 1 to 10, how important is the wood on the altar? Yeah. Give it a 9. A solid 9. Right? I mean, it's because... Like, because you, you probably want to you probably want to elevate it to ten, but like you're you're hoping that maybe there's something else that's even more important than that. But you need if you want fire, you gotta have wood. I mean, how are you gonna have a fire without wood? So it's critical. You have to have the fire on the altar because otherwise, like what's gonna what's gonna be, right? So you, you need the you need the wood. It's critical. But if I ask you, is the wood like a, a spiritual thing or is it pragmatic? Is the wood like is it an avoda? You know what avoda means? What's an avoda? Avoda. What's avoda? Avoda. Work. But it mean, But in the context of spirit of, of the temple, is is it a? What's another word for avoda? Not only work, but it's also service. like a service. Is it a service? Is it like a holy service, or is it just like uh, pragmatic? Just you need wood. You understand my question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sacrificial service is a service. It's 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 a service. You're serving God. The question is: Is the wood a service, or is it? You need wood for the fires. So you're doing wood. Okay, so what we'll see here throughout tonight is that the wood wasn't just a practical necessity. It wasn't just, okay, like we need wood. Like, for example, uh, fuel for your car. Man, gas prices. All right. Anyway, but it's like, you know, you need, you need fuel for your car. You need fuel for the altar. All right, but we don't celebrate it. It's not a thing. It's just, you know, it's pragmatic. 
It's utilitarian. As we'll see tonight, the wood was not just utilitarian. The wood meant something. It was highly specific, the way it was done, how it was done, the ritual that, that, that was involved with the arranging of the wood, and thus it becomes, it, it, it itself is almost like it's part of a service, as we will see. So what we're going to do, first thing, is look at Maimonides. Rambam. Maimonides details how the wood, how and when the wood was arranged on the altar on a daily basis. Okay, raise of hand. Who's been to Fuego Mundo in Sandy? Yeah? Fuego Mundo? You haven't been to Fuego? We got to take it to Fuego. All right. Fuego, let's see the online crew. Yeah, there's a decent number. Okay, good. All right, a lot of people have been to Fuego. Now, for, if you don't know what Fuego is, it's, well, the, the official name, the legal name is Fuego Mundo. Of course I know, uh, it's fire. Yes. Right. What's Mundo? What, is, what does Mundo mean? Mundo is world. World? Yeah. Fire world? Fire of the world. Fire of the world. Fire of the world. Okay. Worldly fire. Interesting. I didn't know. Mundo was world? I didn't know that. I thought mundo means a lot. No, not a lot. Mucho. Oh, rookie mistake. Rookie mistake. Huh? Not fuego mucho. Oh my gosh. When I was in Miami, guys, when I was in Miami, I was a shliach in Miami for a year, like a, as a, as a bachar, as a yeshiva student. When you finish a certain age of yeshiva, then they send you to help out another yeshiva. So I went from Morristown, New Jersey, to South Beach. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> took my talents, Cultural. took my talents to South Beach. Um, that was what LeBron said uh, uh, some years ago. If you remember that famous uh, announcement that he made from Cleveland to Miami, he's like, taking my talents to South Beach. Anyway, so, so went, to, um, went to the yeshiva in Miami, which was 12th and Alton Road, right there in South Beach. Um, and there was a restaurant on 5th and Ocean Drive known as Pita Loca. Pita Loca. <laughs> what does loca mean? Crazy. Crazy pita. I don't know. It was a kosher place. It was great. They delivered with little scooters. They had those little mopeds, like tiny little scooters. They would deliver. It's a machaya. You'd be in yeshiva, right? Hungry. I don't know how we would order back then. It was like 1999. What, what, what even happened in 1999? Does anybody know? No, no, no. We sent out pigeons. We sent out pigeons. We, there, were, there were the birds that went out. I was like, I was, honestly, it was like Noah and the Ark. Ravens and doves until finally the guy with the moped came. Back to the story. So, so what's with the, I don't even know where we're up to. All right, let's get back to the wood. So it was, oh, Fuego Mundo. Oh, if you've been to Fuego Mundo. Oh, hey, it's all coming from, yeah, the wood, wood, wood. It's a wood fire grill. That's all Fuego Mundo, right? A lot of wood. I'm kidding. World wood or something. World, wood source from the world. No, sorry, fire from the world. So it, it's, they have a wood. If you go there, they have a wood fire grill and they have a very cool, like place that holds all the wood. It's like part of the decor. You ever notice that? Like if you look under the counter a little bit, it's like all stocked with wood. And, and they throw wood into the thing. But I'll tell you, I've, I've never seen them do it, but I can imagine they just, you know, they just chuck some wood into the fire. I mean, I'm sure it's somewhat arranged, but as we'll see here in the temple, it was very detailed. Okay, all that was an introduction to text 1B. All right, Matt, you know what? You did a great job with 1A. Let's give you 1B as well. I'm gonna pull this up on the screen. Please take it away. This is the schedule of the service for the fixed daily offerings. 
shortly before the supervisor knocks on the gates of the temple courtyard, and they are open for it. Then the person chosen for this role arranges the large pile of wood on the altar, followed by the second pile. And then he brings up two additional logs of wood and places them on the large pile to increase the fire. Okay, so what we have here is something that happens before dawn. Before dawn already, um, there's somebody that's on top of this wood situation. There's a supervisor. He's knocking on the gates of the temple courtyard. They open the gates. The person chosen for the role, so he arranges a large pile of wood on the altar. There's a second pile, additional logs. It's like a whole thing. It's, a, it, it's very specified as to when it was done, as to who did it, and how they did it. So all of the details were very specified. What we're going to do now is take a look at text number two. But, oh, hold on, before we get to text number two. So what we see here is on a daily basis, the wood was arranged in a very deliberate manner. Somebody was appointed. It was done at a certain time. They went to a certain location. They put the wood. They put an exact amount of wood. It was very detailed, very particular as to how it was done. All this, of course, was to get fire on the altars that they could bring the offerings. Okay, great. Text number two, we're going to learn that not only was the arrangement of the wood, we're going, to work, we're going to work our way backwards. Not only was the wood, when it was put on the altar, was it deliberate, but even which wood was chosen was deliberate. I'll say that again. Not only how the wood was arranged was deliberate, but also which wood, right? How much wood, 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 chuck, chuck, wood, chuck, chuck, wood, right? Which wood? Yeah, I pulled that one off. Which wood was put on the altar? That was also very deliberate. Let's take a look at the Mishnah. Ed, please take a read. The courtyard had four unroofed chambers in its four corners, each of which was 40 cubits squared. The chamber in the northeastern corner was the wood chamber. Priests who were unable to participate in the temple work itself would work in this chamber inspecting the wood for worms. Any piece that had worms was unfit for use on the altar. So, so listen to this. The temple, by the way, this is not the Mishkan. The Mishkan and the portable sanctuary was obviously a much smaller uh, operation. We're talking about the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem. The chambers, it's, it's unbelievable, the, the size is pretty large here. Um, there were... Four, in the four corners of the courtyard, you know, the, there was a courtyard and then inside was a covered building. But there was a courtyard, a perimeter courtyard. In each corner, four corners of the courtyard, there was a, um, like a shed without a roof. Uh, an open shed. Basically a walled-in storage area. And in one of the corners, the northeastern corner specifically, was the wood chamber. They kept all the wood for the altar. They kept logs and logs of wood. And Constantly, the, the, the priests who were unfit because maybe they were injured or they weren't feeling well, whatever it was, priests who were not serving actively in the temple doing the service, they would pick through the wood and look to find any wood that had worms because the wood was very specific. You could not use wood that had any worms, any moldy wood, any wood that wasn't, uh, wasn't the best dry, perfectly clean wood could not be used. So what we see here, what we see here so far, what we've seen is that to have the to bring the offerings, you have to have fire. To have fire, you need wood. To put the wood, it had to be deliberate, right? Somebody did it every day. They put out the wood in a very specific way. Which wood was chosen was also very deliberate, right? The somebody people were picking through the wood to make sure that only the best wood was available for use. Anything that wasn't good, they got rid of on a daily basis. Make sense so far? Let's keep on going. Where did the wood come from? Again, we're working our way backwards. We started with the one who puts it on the altar. 
How did they get it? Who gave it to them? The people who picked it, who selected through it in the chamber. How did they get it to the chamber? Where did, where did the wood come from? I know what you're saying. The forest. Yeah, but how, what was the process? Let's take a look. Let's continue. Maureen, if you don't mind reading this, text 3 of the Mishnah and Tainat says the following. But before we get there, let me give you a quick, very quick introduction. What the Mishnah is about to tell us is that there were nine families nine, in temple times. Back in the day, there were nine families who provided the wood for the temple. They would chop the wood or, or facilitate the chopping of the wood, and they would bring it as an offering, as a donation. That's how the wood, that's how the temple got wood. Nine families, and each one has a, had a designated date in, uh, on, on which they would bring the wood. The Mishnah details the family names and the dates in, on which they brought, that was their day to bring the wood. Nine offerings throughout the year. All right, text 3A, Marnin, take it away. Uh, hold on one sec, let me pull it up. I realize it's not up on the screen yet. And 3A. Okay, go for it, please. Okay. The wood festival of the priests and the people was celebrated nine times a year. On the first of the month of Nisan, the family of Arach from the tribe of Judah donated wood. On the 20th of Tammuz, it was the turn of the family of David from the tribe of Judah. On the 5th of Av, family of Parosh from the tribe of Judah donated the wood. On the seventh of the same month, it was the family of Yonadav, the son of Rechav. On the tenth of that month was the family of Sinach from the tribe of Benjamin. On the fifteenth of that month was the family of Zatu from the tribe of Judah. Interesting names. All right, continue. <laughs> On the 20th of Av, the descendants of Pachot Ma'o from the tribe of Judah. On the 20th of Elul, the descendants of Adin from the tribe of Judah. On the 1st of Tebet, the descendants of Parosh returned to bring wood for a second time. So there was one family, that, that last family, the descendants of Parosh, they brought, a, they had two shifts a year, but everyone else had one shift. So basically, there were nine donation dates and a total of, I guess, eight families, one that brought it twice. So let's just go through very quickly. The names, uh, we're gonna, I'm not going to read them again, but just very quickly. Do, um, uh, donation number one was done on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first of Nisan. The second donation was done on the 20th of Tammuz. The third was on the 5th of Av. The fourth was on the seventh of Av. The fifth was on the tenth of Av. The sixth was on the fifteenth of Av. The seventh was on the twentieth of Av. The eighth was on the twentieth of Elul, and the ninth was on the first of Tevet. So you had nine dates of donations of wood throughout the year between the months of Nisan and the month of Tevet. That is when it was, and and heavily you see the heavy donations were done. Most of them happened in the month of Av which is right at the height of summer, which makes sense if you want dry wood. Makes sense that you're going to, you know, I think it makes sense. You're going to chop the wood then. You're going to cut it up when it's nice and dry outside. To me, it makes sense. Okay, so those are the nine donations. Now, how did these families, how did they get the the privilege of being the ones to donate the wood? What happened? They made a donation. They made a donation. No, but how did, (laughs) yes. (laughs) How did they get privileged to make a donation? They literally made the donation. And and it was, no, but but it it almost seems, not it almost seems like what the mission is telling us is that it was exclusively kind of given to them to bring. 
That's the ultimate plot twist, right? We're giving you the exclusive opportunity to donate all the wood. Like, but, but how did they get that? What's the history behind that? Very interesting history, the Talmud tells. So that was the mission in Tainat. The, the Talmud, in the same tractate, elaborates and explains exactly how that came to be. So, you know, that was a long reading. So let's pass it to Sendrine. Sendrine, please read text 3b. Text 3b is where the Talmud explains the history of how these families got to be the ones to donate the wood, and it all goes back to them originally stepping up to bat. They stepped up to bat once, and thus it became their unique honor to do so forever. All right, take it away, Sandrine, please. Text 3B. The rabbi taught in a beraita. Why was it necessary for the Mishnah to specify the time of the wood festival for the priests and the people? The sages explained that when the people returned from the Babylonian exile to the land of Israel, they could not find any wood in the temple wood chamber. These <coughs> families specified in the Mishnah are the ones that came forward and volunteered to contribute their own wood for this cause. In appreciation for this, the prophet of the era stipulated that even when the wood chamber is full of wood, these families will retain the privilege of contributing their own woods. As the verse states, with the priests, Levites, and the people cast lots for the wood offering to be brought to the home of our God. According to our families, at appointed time every year, to be burned upon the altar of our God, as written in the Torah. Thank you. That's a long, that's a very long verse, but let, let me just explain what's going on basically, or just reiterate what's going on in this Talmudic text. So how did these families, how did these eight, nine families, what eight families, how are they the chosen ones to bring the wood? And the answer is, it goes back to history of the second temple. You know, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and after 70 years, the Jewish people returned and built the second temple. Well, when they built the second temple, there was a lot of poverty. They didn't have a lot of, they, was, they built it very simply. They didn't have a lot of money. They, they had just been exiled for 70 years. They weren't rolling in dough. That wasn't a thing, right? They had no money. So they had no wood. They built the temple and there was no wood. It said, if you read the Talmud, it says, um, they could not find any wood in the temple wood chamber. Well, you know why they couldn't find any wood in the temple wood chamber? Because they didn't have any wood. They didn't have any money. They, they didn't have. That's why they, they didn't find any wood. What do you mean? There's supposed to magically be wood in the wood chamber? Because it's called wood chamber, there should be wood there? I mean, it, there just wasn't wood. No one had wood. No, there, was no, there was no money. They used all the wood to build the temple. They didn't have any more wood. So what happens is these families stepped up and said, you know what? There's no wood. That's it. For, we're not going to burden the community. We're not going to do a fundraiser or, or a donation thing. We're going to give. That's it. These, these families stepped up. And so in appreciation and gratitude for that, even when there's plenty of money, when there's plenty of funding, and there's plenty of wood, these families get to bring wood. These families get to bring And it's considered to be a very big merit. Okay. By the way, not, um, did you want to say something? No. I saw your hand. Sold. Okay. Now, um, hey, you got to be careful. It's an auction. <laughs> So, 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 so that's it. Now, in addition to this, and something to, to specify that's very important, is in addition to the families that brought, Jewish law tells us that individuals could also bring. They could, individuals could also bring. But these families were, were honored with the official giving of the wood. It was like official day on the calendar. Individuals could also bring wood. If you wanted to bring wood, you could bring wood. Why not? Why not? All right. Um, Elio, please read text number four. Page 157. Here's the Sifra, which tells us about the individual offering of the wood as well. From where do we derive that individuals were also able to donate wood? 
The verse states, when a person brings a sacrifice, Leviticus 2.1, and we derive from here that an individual may also donate wood. Very interesting. So the Sifra, which is a legal midrash, a legalistic midrash, not one that's going to tell you like the stories and whatever, it's a gazund, but it's one that's going to tell you halacha. So here you go. So the Sifra says, the Sifra says that individuals are also allowed to donate wood. Not only the families, but like you, you and I, if we wanted to donate wood, you're not, one of the, you're not from that family that donated on that date, no problem, you could bring wood. How do we know this? The Pasuk says, the Pasuk says, Karban, a person brings a sacrifice, which tells us that a person may donate wood, which, by the way, tells us that bringing of the wood was considered to be a mitzvah, mitzvah and a sacrifice. Bringing the wood was considered to be a sacrifice. So it says when a person brings a sacrifice, that means it's up to anyone could bring a sacrifice. Anyone could also bring a donation of wood because it's also kind of like a sacrifice. Now, what, what happened on those days? What happened on the dates that the families or individuals even brought the wood? The, um, our tradition tells us that they became mini holidays for the family or for the individual. So the date of the family, when the family would donate wood, let's say the 5th of Av or the 10th of Av or the 17th, whatever the dates that we had over there, right? Whatever the date was for that family, when that family brought wood, it was a celebration. It was a mini yomtif, a mini holiday. Take a look at text 5a. Take a look at this. Text 5a. By the way, I love that we're learning a very little known, not well known area of Jewish law and Jewish tradition and Jewish history. It's kind of cool. All right, let's take a look at text 5a. Here's what Rambam says. What day, sorry, what was the day of the wood sacrifice? What was, what was the day? Hmm. I don't like that translation. It says, umahu karban ha'etzim. That means kind of what was the wood sacrifice, not what was the day of the wood sacrifice. But anyway, let's continue inside. Certain families had a fixed time, as we saw in the Mishnah. Certain families had a fixed time on which they would go out to the forest and bring wood for the pile on the altar. On the day designated for each particular family to bring the wood sacrifice, they would also bring, the family would also bring voluntary burnt animal sacrifices. This occasion was called the day of the wood sacrifice, and it was celebrated as a festival, as a yomtif, for the family bring the wood. On this day, the family was forbidden to deliver mournful eulogies for the deceased or, or fast, and they were also not allowed to perform work on this day. Look at that. They didn't work, it was a holiday. They didn't work on that day, on the day of the bring the wood. This was the minhag. The Davrze minhag, huh? I guess, I, let's, no, let's say this. Aside, aside from bringing the wood, that was, that, right, that was the, 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 the festivity of the day. Aside from that, they didn't go to work. They, 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 they did. Now, does it mean that they didn't do like any of the t categories of labor that are forbidden on Shabbos. Was it like a Shabbos? Or was it more of like they didn't go to work and, 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 and hit their day jobs? I'm not sure. We would have to look up my monitors and the commentaries there. But the bottom line is that not only did certain families donate wood on a certain day, that day became for them a personal holiday. They didn't fast. They didn't eulogize. They celebrated. They didn't work on that day. It was all about the wood and all about the celebration. And as I mentioned before, not only did families donate on specific days, but individuals could also bring, you know, individuals could bring. And when an individual brought, it was also a holiday. Text 5b. Let's continue. Maimonides says, 
even a private individual, page 158, even a private individual who donated water logs for the pile on the altar is forbidden to deliver mournful eulogies for the deceased or to fast and is not allowed to perform work on this day. This was the custom. Now, n- none of this, by the way, is halacha. There's, a, there's a very important to, to note. This is not Jewish law. He says, V'davr's that minhag. This was custom. Custom is not law, although we say minhag is Torah, that the custom, Jewish custom is, is Torah also, but there's still a differentiation. The point is, it became the tradition that whoever's donating wood on that day doesn't work, whether it's a family, an individual, either way, donating the wood was a big deal. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, I was trying to ask something else, but today it'd be hard to use as an excuse for your boss to try to get off work. Yeah, this would be a very, yes, good point. If you call in sick, or you call in to work one day, like, hey, I got to bring wood to the altar, sorry, I can't work, see you tomorrow. I don't know that that's going to fly. That may, that may not be good. Okay, so let, let's, let's recap. I want to do, yes. When they brought the wood for the sacrifice that day, did they bring just enough for that day, or did they bring enough to put in the storage unit? They brought for the storage unit. Okay. They brought for the storage unit. Yeah, they didn't just bring for the day. They brought, they brought a lot of wood. They, okay. they stockpiled the wood. Um, on the day they brought it, that's when they would have a personal, they would customarily have a, have a personal holiday. Good question. So let's, let's quickly recap how we got here. Here's what we know. In the temple, there are sacrifices that are brought. A lot of the sacrifices are burnt on the altar. To have fire on the altar, you need wood. The wood was arranged every morning before dawn. Somebody went and started arranging the wood pile, wood piles on the altar in a very specific way. How did they get the wood? Sorry, which wood did they get or how did they get the wood? They got it from the Lishkas Ha'etzim, the, the, the wood chamber. Oh, I forgot to mention. It was, what was it, 40 by 40 cubits? That's 60 by 60 feet. What's 60 by 60 feet? How many square feet? 3,600 square feet. That's a very large storage unit. Are you with me on that? I think it's pretty large for wood. 3,600 square feet, yes. Yeah, that's bigger than some lot of houses. That's bigger than my house. Right, 3,600 square feet? Yeah. 60 by 60 feet. That's a, that's a big storage area. That's a lot of wood. That's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot of wood. Right, so, so that's where the wood was stored every morning. Uh, every day, the priests who weren't on the, on, the, on the floor, so to speak, they were sorting through the wood and kind of discarding the wood that had become a little bit moldy or a little bit wormy. They, they got rid of that and only left the dry, clean, you know, nice-looking wood. And then in the morning, the people would take it. Where did the wood come from? How did it end up in the storage unit? Well, it was brought by families and individuals. And on the day that it was brought, it was a holiday. I just recapped the whole class up until now. You guys with me? Yes? Yes? Mm-hmm. yes? Okay. Now, let's keep on going. And let me pause for a moment and talk about a minor or a, uh, a not so well-known Jewish holiday. You know, we're all familiar with the Passovers of the world and the, Pur- the Purims, the Passovers, the Rosh Hashanah, the Yom Kippurs, right? That, those are Hanukkah, etc. Those are the holidays that we're familiar with. But there's another holiday that is considered to be a Jewish holiday that maybe we're not all familiar with, and I, and, and I want to speak about that right now. And I'm referring to the holiday known as Tu Ba'av. Not Tu B'Shvat. Not Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Shvat is the birthday of the trees. That's also become more well-known. This is Tu Ba'av, which is the 15th day of Av. Now, 15th day of Av usually falls out August. August time, around like late summer-ish, right? Tuba Av is the 15th day of Av. 
and it is considered to be a holiday. In fact, the Talmud talks about what kind of holiday it was. It says that in ancient times, the two major holidays, it says there weren't holidays amongst the Jewish people like Yom Kippur and Tubav. That's what it says. It likens Tubav to Yom Kippur. Now, Yom Kippur, everyone knows. And, 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 the, and the Talmud likens, the mission of the Talmud, it likens Tubav, the 15th of Av, to Yom Kippur. Clearly, it's a big deal. Now, it's not a biblical holiday. It's not even a rabbinic holiday. It just became a day of celebration. So the Talmud, oh, that, the Mishnah says that. The Talmud is trying to figure out what, what happened on that day. Like, what's, going, like, what's the day? What, what happens on the 15th of Av that it's a celebration? Spontaneous celebration. Where, where, what's going on? So what, what most people know about that day is it's a day of love. That's what most people know. It's the Jewish day of love. Most people today in 2022, 5782, right? Most people today, when they hear of Tuba Av and they've heard that it's a holiday, they associate it with the idea that it's a day of love. Let's take a look at text number six from the Talmud that expresses this idea. Don't worry, we're gonna get back to the word in a second. But let's 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 go through the through the uh, through the storyline over here. Okay? Text number six. Here's what the Talmud says. The Talmud describes what would happen in ancient Israel on that day, of the 15th of Av. The Jewish girls would go out and dance in the vineyards. And single men would come to find a wife. So, again, just so far we have single young women and young men, right? Would go out into the vineyards and it was a chance to meet each other. A tanait... Oh, I don't know what, what is going on over there. A Tanaidic scholar. Why so complicated? A Tana. It's called a Tana. Tana is a Mishnaic era scholar. A Tana once taught, one who did not have a wife would turn to there to find one. In other words, if you were looking to get, you're looking to get married, looking for a relationship, Tubab was your day. That was the day. The single men, single women would go out to the vineyards and they would meet each other. It was like... Um, a mixer. A mixer? Is that what we call it? A so- no, they're called Sadie Hawkins Day. What's Sadie Hawkins Day? What is that? Yeah. I, don't, I have no idea what that is. Is that a thing? What? It used what? to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where the man would ask the woman. No, the woman would ask the man. Oh, wait, you're right, you're right. But what? Right. Sadie Hawkins? What? I don't know what ask the man Hawkins, to a dance. Where? When? What? <laughs> Uh, it was Beth, a certain day? Beth Kirby did not ask me out in the 11th grade. Who did not ask? Beth Kurtz. Beth Kurtz. Oh, wow. I, some, some old, no, no, some old trauma here is coming out. All right. I hear you. It wasn't necessarily universal. Okay. I'll th- let me put it this way. Growing, let, here, here's, here's my experience. Growing up in Pittsburgh in yeshiva, in an all-boys yeshiva, we didn't have this. No. I'm no. And then in London and in Morristown and even in, in Miami, didn't, didn't encounter this custom, but nonetheless. But here's the point. Here's the point. There's, um, there, is a, there was a day on the calendar. It was the 15th of Av, the day that we're talking about, Tubav, when the single men and single women would go out 
uh, into the field and have a chance to meet each other. Now listen to this. It's, it continues. The Talmud continues. The sages taught about the details of this practice. The beautiful girls would say, young man, pay attention to beauty because a wife is primarily for her beauty. The girls of distinguished lineage would say, pay attention to the family because a wife is primarily for children. The simple girls that lack beauty and a distinguished lineage would say, make your choice based on holy considerations out of fear of heaven. And after marriage, you will adorn us with gold jewelry. Very interesting, very interesting. So the ones that were beautiful said... No, I'm beautiful. The ones that had lineage say, no, I've got lineage. The ones that might have uh, felt that they didn't have much of either said, who needs beauty? Who needs lineage? Right? This is a whole, it's a mitzvah to get married. Do it for God, if you will. I'm kidding. I'm just paraphrasing. And then after marriage, you'll give us gold jewelry. And you know what? We'll be beautiful also. Right? That's it. By the way, it also says, it also says, listen, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting Talmudic piece, and I'm sure there's a lot of commentators. But the Talmud, what's not quoted here is another thing. It says that everyone would wear white dresses. All the, all the young women would wear white dresses. And they won't, wouldn't wear their own dresses. They would, they would um, borrow each other's dresses. So that no one would be able to know who had money. Who had money. That was an interesting twist. So it shouldn't be about the money. It should be about the money. Anyway, listen. Honestly, today, what do we have? Today we have, what are some dating reality shows? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. All right, whatever. Consult your local, uh, your local reality show. Gaval, I don't even know what they have. Not Survivor, huh? Oh, The Bachelor. That's what it was. The Bachelor. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. That's what it is. That's what I was looking for, right? This is the Jew. Oh, guys, I have a new pitch, right? The Jewish Bachelor, The Jewish Bachelorette. Done. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um, what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? But anyway, this was the... <laughs> 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 we could do this. We, could, we should do this. All right. Come back. Tuba of. We got this down. We got this down, Pat. So Tuba of was the day on the calendar for matchmaker. Not matchmaker. For love. Day for love. For relationships. Yeah. Okay, good. It was the one day a year in which it was focused on. That's what most people know about Tubav. But you know what? That's one of seven. The Talmud says, what happened in Tubav? Why is it such a holiday? And it gives seven things that happen. That's one of them. But you know what the primary reason why it's a holiday is not because of the love thing. Not because of all this. This was all a misdirection. You see what just happened? This was all a smokescreen. The Talmud, the Talmud says it. But that's not the main reason why Tubav became a holiday. Why was Tubav a holiday? Because of the wood. Back to the wood. What, what's, what happened with the wood? Take a look at text number 7. I'm going to put up in a second. What happened on Tuba Av is it was the last day of the year, of the season, in which they chopped wood for the altar. Why? I already told you why. Because Tuba Av is when? What month is it? August. It's August. It's hot. Right after Tuba Av? It starts getting cooler and rainier and wetter and all that stuff. So Tubav was the day, the last day that they chopped wood. Now, if you followed along with the previous text, if you held it, if you held cup, if you were holding on to all the details, you would notice that some of the families donated the wood after the 15th of Av. 20th of Av, Elul, Tevet, what happened? It wasn't cut after Tubav. But they donated it afterwards. But when was the last day that it was cut? The last day that it was cut was Tubav. Does that make sense what I just said? Yeah. It was cut, the deadline or whatever, the end of the cutting was the 15th of Av. 
Subsequently, some of the families donated it afterwards, but it was all from that which was cut prior to that end of Tuba Av. Tuba Av was thus, the fifth, two is the 15th, Tesvav is the 15th. Tuba Av, the 15th of, not two, two, Tesvav, the 15th of Av was thus the date of the ending of the, of the chopping of the wood. Now, wh- why is that significant? Why is that significant? Huh? Chopping of the wood. You like that? It's like almost like a tomahawk chop. Braves. The Braves. All right, that's controversial. We're not going to get into that. Okay, or maybe not. Um, text number seven. This is where the Talmud says this. So again, the whole thing about love and the dresses and the women and the men and everything, that's the thing that everyone today associates with Tubav. But the primary reason in the Talmud why Tubav is a holiday is not because of the love. It's because of the chopping. Take a look at text seven. The 15th of the month of Av was the day on which they ceased cutting trees for the wood on the altar. That was the last day of the chopping. As Rabbi Eliezer the Great taught, oh, Rabbi Eliezer the Great, that sounds like a great, he, following the 15th of Av, the sun's strength wanes. It starts to get cooler. So they would stop cutting trees for the altar because the wood wouldn't be sufficiently dry, providing an inviting habitat for worm infestation. You don't want wormy wood. That was supposed to be, uh, that was going to be, Checked out anyway. That was not going to be used. So they only chopped wood through the 15th of Av. That was the last day of, of the year. Rabbi Menashe said, yeah, Rabbi Menashe said, they therefore called this day the day of breaking the axes. It was the day of Yom Tevar Magal. They broke the axes on that day. Why? As they were no longer necessary for the season. They no longer needed the axes, so they broke them because they weren't chopping any wood. And I'm going to ask you, huh? They didn't want to be tempted. They didn't want to be tempted to break, right? Marnie's like, yeah, you don't, you don't have a, an axe around because like, oh my gosh, I really want to chop down wood. So they broke the axes. I'm going to ask two questions. Two questions, okay? You ready? These, these should be two obvious questions. Question number one, why is that a holiday? You kidding me? You tell me it's a day of love. Sure, it sounds like a holiday. Sure, we'll create a reality show about it. Yeah, it sounds like a party. Yeah, we'll celebrate that. But you tell me that the primary reason of the Talmud is the reason because that was the last day of cutting the wood. Why is that a celebration? Cutting the, you finish cutting the wood for the altar so it's such a celebration that it's like Yom Kippur? What's going on here? Cutting the wood for the altar is such a day of celebration? You cut the wood. Big deal. Why is that a celebration? Number one. Number two, why would you break the axe? What does it mean you broke the axe? You finish chopping wood for the year. See, what would you, what would it, I'm saying, what would it, what would, what would you do if you finished chopping wood for the season? What would you do with the axe? Clean it, store it, and save it for the next season. Bada beam, bada boom, you would save it for next year, right? It seems kind of obvious. What did they do? They Bo Jackson this. They're like, boom, right on the knee. Like, what is that? Who does that if you don't know Bo Jackson? Remember Bo Jackson? The baseball player, he struck out. He would, like, break the, break the bat on his knee. Remember that guy? Oh, Bo Jackson. He was the Baseball bomb. And Baseball and football. That guy was out of control. Unbelievable. Anyway, back to our story. So why are they breaking the axe? Who's breaking the axe? You use it for next year. What are you breaking? First of all, first of all, we know that in Judaism, Paltashkis, you're not supposed to destroy things. Yeah, you're not allowed to destroy something that has utility. Right? Reuse, recycle. We, we reuse things. But break the axe? What kind of, what kind of uh, waste is that? We don't waste things. What, they, what does it mean? They, they broke the axe. And why is it a holiday? It doesn't make sense. So, now, the simple answer it's is... Rabbi Ari. Yes. It's the bus by chop holiday. It's the what? It's the bus my chop holiday. 
Passed my child. Oh, good, good, good. No, but the question is, on a serious note, the question is, why, number one, why is it a holiday? And why'd they break the axe? What's going on here? So the simple, the simple angle is, the angle that we'll start with is, is, um, okay, they finished the mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to have wood and the, it, it's, the, the sacrifices are a mitzvah. To have the sacrifices burnt, you need fire. To have the fire, you need wood. To have wood, you have to chop the wood. And when they finished chopping the wood, they, did, they finished a the mitzvah preparing the wood for the altar. So when you finish a mitzvah, you should throw a party. Make sense? You finish a mitzvah, throw a party. By the way, this is a message in life. This is true, by the way. You finish a mitzvah, or you finish studying something, throw a party. It's called a siyum. Siyum. Yeah. It's a conclusion. Beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Let's look at text number eight. And, I'll, and we'll look at some, some text. By the way, we're not going to go with this. We're going to go much deeper. But let's just give the basic answer. The basic answer is they finished a mitzvah. Great, they're going to they're celebrate. Take a look at text 8. I'm going to read this. The, cel- the 15th of Av, this is the Namuka Yosef. Ah, oh, a great Talmudic scholar. Uh, the 15th of Av, he says, was celebrated as a joyous festival. Why? Because on this day they would complete and conclude the mitzvah of the wood donation. It is customary to make a festive day with a celebratory meal when one completes any mitzvah. So you finish a mitzvah, you do a mitzvah, Done, you're done. By the way, we do this also. We, we all know this. One second, one second. We all, we've all done this. We've all done that. We participated in this. Everyone here has participated in one of these things. Yeah, you go to a bris. Yeah, what happens after the bris? There's a soda, there's a feast. Why, why a feast? What do we, we celebrate? A mitzvah was completed. A mitzvah was done. Great. Yeah, a wedding. There's a celebration after, right? Uh, a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah. Any mitzvah, that when you finish a mitzvah, you celebrate. So why was the 15th of Av a celebration? Because they just finished a mitzvah. What was the mitzvah? They finished chopping the wood. So they're celebrating. It became a holiday. Come on. That's why it's such a holiday. I mean, it's only the wood. It's the wood that you need for the fire on the altar to burn the sacrifice. It seems like very, like, it's not I don't know, convoluted, but it seems like a, a, a big preparation for something. It's like you had to chop the wood, for, to get the wood, for the fuel, for the fire, for the altar. So that's what you're celebrating. That becomes a great day like Yom Kippur. There's got to be something else. My friends, there's something much deeper. And, and, and so that's question number one. Question number two is that that doesn't answer our question why they broke the axes. Well, they, you still have, that question has not yet been resolved. Even if you want to say the reason why the 15th of is a celebration is because they finished a mitzvah. And when you finish a mitzvah, you celebrate, you throw a party. And that is true. We throw a party when we finish a mitzvah. Nachon, true. But nonetheless, why'd they break the axe? We still haven't answered that question. So to understand this, we need to look at the axe. That's the key. The key to understanding this is the axe. It's always the axe. Ay, 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 ay. Axe, 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 axe. So what is the axe? An axe has two parts. An axe has a handle and an axe has a blade. An axe has a handle, and an axe has the blade. By the way, the Medjur says, when the trees were afraid, when the trees looked down and saw the metal, and they said to God, ay, 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 you created the earth with metal, it's going to chop us down. You know what God says to the trees? Just don't provide the handle. Ah. <laughs> it can't chop you down without you contributing. It's a lesson in life, by the way, right? Right? No. We, we, if we don't allow the other to hurt us, right, how could... So, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson in life, right? Don't, don't give the handle, don't give the axe the handle to chop yourself down. You with me on this? All right, we can do a whole class on that, but let's move on. So uh, an axe has two components. There's the wooden hand, typically a wooden handle and a metal axe. 
What is the metal, what is the axe made out of? Back in the day, it was made out of iron. What's interesting is, and you may know this, is that the altar, there was a specific prohibition with the altar. What was the prohibition with the altar? The prohibition was, let me see if I can find it here. Um, the altar could not, I wish I had a text that was clean. All right, it's too complicated right, with the text. Use a weapon that kills to make some oh, piece. You could not cut the stones for the altar with metal. They had to dig and find special stones that were already shaped correctly because they... Here, Mishnah, I found it. Text 12. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Instead of me telling you this story, let's read it from the source. Okay, we're skipping a few texts. Don't worry. Don't worry. You're in good hands. I'm steering the ship. Text 12, Mishnah. The stones that form the ramp leading up to the altar, as well as the stones of the altar itself, were all sourced from the valley of Beit Kerem. That was in Israel. They dug into virgin soil and extracted whole stones on which no iron had been applied. Since iron disqualifies materials for the altar by its very touch. The moment you touch iron to the stone, you can no longer use it for the altar. Why? The reason for this is that iron serves the purpose of shortening life. Iron makes weapons, which is all about killing, which is all about shortening life. Whereas the purpose of the altar, which granted uh, atonement and forgiveness, is to extend people's lives. It is therefore inappropriate to use material that shortens life on a structure that extends life. Are you with me on this? Don't use iron on the altar. Why? Because iron takes life and the altar gives life. It's inappropriate on the altar that gives life to use something that shortens life. Yes? Yes? You're with me. But what about the wood? But what about the wood? Stay with me, guys. Stay with me. What about the wood? How they chop down the wood? What they use to chop down the wood? Guys, what they use? Iron. iron. They used iron. So hold one second. The same iron, how cut for a second. The same iron that you couldn't use on the altar, you did use for the wood that went on the altar. How, how, how does that work? If you, don't want, if you don't want iron, if you don't want iron with your altar, how they chop down the wood? There you go. Blew up, blow, blowing up a hole in this whole theory. You say, you can't use iron on the stones to build the altar because it has to be peace. So what, how'd you get wood? How'd you get, how'd you get a nice little uh, wood, wood, chopped up wood? They used had, iron. They had some purpose to cut the wood. So one second, well, yeah, but you could have said the iron has a purpose to cut the stones for the, for the altar. It still doesn't fly. No iron could touch the altar, but it could touch the wood that touches the altar. You know why? There's a major lesson in life. Sometimes we have things that have firm principles. We have ideas and ideals that are that very firm principles. But in the lead up to those principles, we might have to compromise the principles to reach the principles. Are you with me on this? This happens all the time in life. Right? We have our values, but in order to achieve our values, right, we compromise our values. On the, you with me on this? On the journey toward reaching our values, we compromise values. You want, should we speak real? Yeah? Should we speak honestly? Okay. We want Mashiach. Right? Mashiach is a time of peace. But we don't live in a world of peace. Just look around. Just look at what's going on. Right? We wish that no iron would ever be used against life. Yes? This class was designed for this week by divine providence. Yeah? Okay. We wish, we hope, we pray that no iron will be used. The reality is the world is not there yet. So as we're trying to get to a place of peace, 
Unfortunately, there's another reality that we encounter. And in life, it's always like that. In life, we have our ideals. We have the goal, the ideal destination. But along the journey, we encounter everything that is not ideal. Right? That's the way life is. Yeah, life is not lived in the ideal. It's lived in the, in the actual. And the journey toward the ideal is fraught with challenge. That's the way life works. That's the way it is. So yes, we're praying and we're hoping and we're davening and we're working toward a world of peace. We don't have that peace. And so, as a, I'm going to say concession, the reality, it's, 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 it's ideal versus reality. The ideal is the ideal and the reality is different. And the same thing is true with the altar. The altar represented the ideal. The altar is that divine space. In that divine space, no iron. But what about, but, but the world is not lived in that perfect space. What about out in the forest? You use iron in the forest because the altar is the altar, but life is not lived on the altar. Life is lived out in the forest. And in the forest, you do use metal. Are you with me? But what happens after you finish chopping the wood? What do you do? You break the axe. And break, you with me on this? And I said, before, why break the axe? It's a good axe. Why break the axe? You're wasting an axe. Because the axe represents violence. The whole purpose of the, are you guys with me on this? The whole purpose of the altar was a place of peace, a place of life. But as a concession to the reality of the world, you have to use that which cuts down life. You have to use a metal implement, a sharp metal, dangerous implement to chop the wood. But the moment you're done, you break, you break the axe. Why? Because the whole purpose is now that we have the wood, we don't need the axe anymore. My friends, this is life. Life is we want peace. But on the way to peace, sometimes it requires that I'm not talking about violence against innocence. I'm talking about how to fight the violence against innocence. Sometimes you have to use strength to fight injustice. Are you with me in what I'm saying here? I want to make sure I'm not being misconstrued here. Yeah, please don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. Sometimes in our lifetime, in our reality, in our exile reality, you have to use strength, the hands of Asaph, to fight against evil in the world. You have to do so. Is that ideal? No. Is that an altar state? No. That's a forest reality. But you got to do it. But you don't want to do it. But you have to do it. But you don't want to. The moment you no longer have to, you break the axe. But, as, but until you're finished, you have to use the metal. To sit back and say, we're not going to use the metal, is itself a disservice. Is the wrong approach. Because we're not in an altar state to pretend that we're in a messianic state. That there's, no, there's nothing that has to be fought against is, is to live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place that's detached from reality. And I'm not going to specify what I'm talking about because everyone knows what I'm talking about. And the reality is that we have, we have to know that as long as we're in the forest, we have to use the axe to chop down the tree. That's the way it is. The moment that's done, we have to break the axe and celebrate. And that's why Tuba'av is the greatest yamtiv. Tuba'av is the greatest holiday. You know why? Tuba'av is when we no longer have to use the axe. That's what Tuba'av is. You guys with me on this? It's, I know it's like a little bit allegorical or metaphorical or whatever it is, but hopefully it's clear. Tuba'av is the day that we can finally indulge in the ideal. Tuba'av in the Jewish calendar was the day in which the wood was no longer needed to be chopped. Trees didn't have to come down. And therefore, we could finally break the axe and get, do away with the metal implements. Do away with the sharp blades. Do away with the violent, violent implements. We can do away with it. And, 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 and that is why it's a celebration, because it's the day in which we can finally become one 
with the ideal. Now it happened in a microcosm. The world wasn't messianic, wasn't perfected every year on Tubav back in the day, but in one small area with regard to chopping the wood, chopping the trees, chopping wood for the, for the altar, it, that was the day in which the, the journey aligned with the destination. The destination was the altar, which is peace. The journey, though, sometimes it, it, um, to get to a place of peace, sometimes you got to use less than peaceful means to get to a place of peace. But on Tubav, the journey finally aligned and culminated with the destination, so they broke the axe, and that's the Yom Tif. And my friends, this is what we celebrate on Tubav. This is what, this is why they broke the axe, and this is what we want now. We want now a time when there's no longer a journey. We want the destination. We want Mashiach when we can finally break the axes. In the language, in the classic language of the prophet, when the swords will be beaten into plowshares. When, right, as Morasara uh, wrote a song recently, when no more bullets, right? No more bullets being made. Sarah, you can, you can attest to this, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, no more bullets, no more bullets, no more bullets. We, that's the time that we want. In the time of exile, time of Gullah, sometimes, sometimes the good guys also need to pick up the axe. But no one wants to do that. No one wants to do that. But before you, you finish the job, sometimes you have to do that. But no one wants to do that. And when you no longer have to do that, it's going to be the greatest yomtiv. That's the greatest celebration. And so, my friends, as we enter the book of Leviticus, this is week one of Leviticus, and as we read about the sacrifices and we read about the offerings that required fire and to get fire you needed to have wood and the wood required a ceremony and a donation and all that stuff and of course chopping the wood. And as we think about the wood on the altar, let's recognize its journey. Its journey, it started off. Its journey originates with an act of violence, an act of tree, um, um, iron against tree violence. Violently, if you will, chopping down a tree, disconnecting it from its source of life and splitting it up into pieces. And that is a less than ideal approach. How do I know this? Because the altar itself, if that happened to the altar, it would be disqualified. If you took the same implement and started chopping up stones for the altar, the altar was not kosher. So the same thing that you do for the tree, you could not do for the altar. And yet, we compromise because life is lived, life is lived not in the ideal. But when that ideal is reached, when there's enough wood, when the wood is chopped down, when the trees are chopped down, when, 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 when the preparation is set, when it's done, then finally we can come to the fulfillment of the, of the ideal, which is no more metal, no more bullets, no more violence, no more sharp implements, only to cut, uh, to cut the challah on Shabbos. Otherwise, no more, no more metal, no more iron, and a world of peace, a world when, where, where everyone can live and let live. And as Maimonides says, at that time there will not be any hatred or jealousy or anger. The world will only know, will only know God. And the, the knowledge of God will fill the earth. Like the waters fill the ocean bed. May be speed in our days and let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for Torah studies and I'm certainly available to take questions or comments. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, one second, Matt. Yeah. Um, this is reminding me of a, a DC show called Peacemaker. It was based on one of the characters from the Suicide Squad. His backstory was that he was a diplomat who was willing to commit the barbaric acts of violence in order to keep the peace. Mm. And so it brings you in that weird 
state of his stated goal is the to question, question more more uh, questionable morality, like committing acts of terror in order to bring about something more peaceful, right? Yeah. Not saying that what he did was right or not. But right. It, it brings you in that weird space of you're not questioning the morality. Like, is, is what he's doing morals and not morals? Right. So this class kind of reminded me of that, like being in that like gray area. It's like, yeah. is it right? It's like I kind of have to do it. I don't feel comfortable doing it. I don't want to be doing it, but I kind of have to to achieve the end. I mean, I heard from somebody. I mean, that's not exactly the same thing. This would be a case of lack of action, but I'm sure we can all relate to this. Somebody who was in Sayer Tamatgal. You know what Sayer Tamatgal is? Sayer Tamatgal? It's in the IDF. It's the highest secret ops. It's like the highest, um, the highest, uh, well, what's the highest in, in our, in our, our huh? Like a Navy Delta, force. Like a Delta like Force. Like yeah, like Navy SEALs, like a highest level. And I heard off the record from this guy that because it can't be on the record. I heard from this guy, but I feel comfortable sharing it here. No problem amongst friends and, and no, but, but it's, I'm not no specific information, but that Israel sits all the time on information that it knows, like about terrorism and other activities, and it just doesn't act on it. Because, not for lack of resources, but because you act on it, what's gonna happen? Then suddenly your contact is going to be exposed because they'll realize like how did you huh your sources huh protecting sources you're protecting sources and or or maybe you're waiting for something bigger to happen to be able to do some sort of whatever it is there's a ton of calculations when you're on that high level you realize it's not so simple as oh you know something do something it's not so simple there's a thousand other considerations that have to be measured so that that's again the same moral quandary of you know here's what I want but am, am I compromising my values in order to get there and it becomes a very complicated situation. This is chopping the wood with the same iron implement that you couldn't use on the altar. It's complicated. And that what, we, what we all want is a time in which that confusion, I'm not going to weigh the question. Everyone's, there's a, there's a ton of questions. Every step along the way, there are questions, moral questions, quandaries. That, but what we can all agree is a time when there's no more questions, when there's only peace and only goodness and, and the, the objective is fulfilled, that's the goal. And that would be the ultimate celebration. All right. Questions, comments, questions, comments. Made sense? Question. Yes. Uh, so, but they use a metal knife to slaughter the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But they don't, they don't destroy the knife every time it's used. Yeah, because they still needed to use it. This was after every year. I mean, yeah, listen, it's a symbolic thing. This was after the full year, so it was kind of like they were going to take a break for a while until they started chopping it again after, you know, maybe in six months or so. So there was this idea, there was this notion of... Um, of, um, of kind of finishing the cycle and hoping maybe, you know, maybe we're done with, with chopping. Maybe we can have wood in another way. As far as the knife of Shrita, yeah, it would, be, it would be very impractical. The idea here is that practically speaking, we got to use metal. We're hoping for a time in which metals never needed to be used on, uh, for, 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 for negative things. This was one form of symbolism of it. So you're right, it's the metal, the knife was used. And the knife was used at home. When people went home and they ate, they ate food, they also used knives. But it's, it's a symbolic thing with the, with the chopping of the wood. Yeah. Kept the knife makers in business. Kept the axe makers in business, right? Everyone's got to buy a new axe next year. Exactly. All right, good, good question. Questions, comments? Siad. Questions, comments? Yes. Richard, jump in. But you're, yeah. This is on the subject, but off the subject. Where did they get the wood in the desert with the Mishkan, not the temple with the Mishkan? Where did they the get the wood to build the Mishkan? 
thought it was from Isaac or someone had it there. Jacob. Jacob brought the wood. They brought the wood. They got wood. By the way, one miss, one miss, uh, one miss, um, uh, misunderstanding about the Mishkan experience is that they were isolated. They weren't isolated. There were merchants that went by, ice cream trucks, wood sellers, everything. No, yeah, literally good humor ice cream. No, but like, um, um, no, there, was, there, there, there were merchants, and this is brought down in the commentaries. The Jewish people, the Israelites in the, in the ancient desert, they encountered other, other peoples. And so they could buy wood. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't a shortage of supplies. Another comment, if I may, real quickly. Was this not also the day that uh, they dug their graves, went to sleep, and got up, and those who got up uh, lived, and those who didn't die? That also the 15th? Um, it might be. It might be one of the... There's seven rationales given in the Talmud. That might be one of the seven. It might be. Well, I like yours better. It was a good class. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's not mine. It's the Talmud's um, and its explanation. But one, one thing before... If, if anybody has to go, I just want to make sure to say this. Tomorrow night, we're having a very special event with a Chabad rabbi from Ukraine who escaped Ukraine. He's going to be speaking for our community. It's going to be a few communities together. It's us, Chabad of Cobb, Chabad of North Fulton, and Chabad of, there's another Chabad, uh, Kennesaw. So there's a few Chabads local, the Georgia Chabads, that are jumping on this together. Tomorrow night, um, what was the time? Uh, the time was, give me a second. Give me a second. Um, let me look this up for myself. I didn't put this together myself, so I'm a little bit okay. Seven thirty tomorrow night. Okay, I'm gonna post this in the I'm gonna post this in the chat right now. So for all those that want to join, you can just jump on it tomorrow night at seven thirty. Um, an email went out from Chabad in town, yeah. not an IJ specific email, but a Chabad in town one went out. So that's the, I just dropped it in the chat. It's, um, I'm going to read it. Behind the scenes in Ukraine, from Sumi, Ukraine to Atlanta, a live conversation with the leader of the Jewish community of Sumi, Ukraine. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Rabbi Yechil Avitansky. Here, firsthand account of events on the ground in Sumi, Ukraine. His 72, 72 hour, I'm assuming, escape ordeal and how you can help. Thursday, March 10th. 7.30 p.m. It has the Zoom meeting ID and password. I don't have a direct link. Again, I didn't set up the Zoom, so I don't have that direct link. But um, you can certainly feel free to, I mean, old school, you have to do it manually. Type in the meeting ID and type in the password, and it's right there. Okay, friends, um, I am going to, uh, any other questions? Fred, jump in. Uh, just one, in, two, two interesting things, Rabbi. Uh, uh, I find it interesting that Woodcutter families were mentioned because not everybody has the fortitude to be a woodcutter. Right. Say it, wait, say it one more time. Say, you, the fortitude, say it one more time. The, the, you feel well, they mentioned the, the families that cut the wood. Yeah, yeah. And not everybody has the fortitude to be a woodcutter. I'm talking right. about a veteran. Right. Right, yeah, good, 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 yes, yeah, to continue the theme, right. Not everyone, right, not everyone, yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I yeah, also... in, in one second, let me just elaborate on that, because Fred has first exa first-hand example. Fred, Fred, is, uh, Fred is a war hero. Uh, he doesn't like when I say that, but it doesn't matter, it's still the truth. Um, and uh, so Fred, listen, you don't, you don't have to like what I'm saying, but I'm saying it anyway. But Fred's point is, in a world of imperfection, sometimes you have to use an axe, 
to get to that place of peace. And what Fred's point is, not everyone's, not everyone's a woodchopper. Not everyone can, you know, not, not everyone's, uh, you know. And, and those were the heroes. The, the, eight, the eight, nine families, they were celebrated. Correct. Very good point. Excellent point. Yeah. The second point is I, I saw an interview with, uh, I believe it was uh, Yonatan uh, Markowitz, who's uh, also a Chabad rabbi from Ukraine. Okay. And he was told to leave, not asked to leave, Interesting. told to leave. Uh, and uh, they asked him why, and he said, well, they, the Russians have uh, like these uh, uh, hit squads and... Uh, that they send out and they were afraid that they would target Jews and specifically him mm. and anybody around him would be in danger. Yeah. So if he left, it would, it would help ease the rest of the Jewish population there. Yeah. Crazy, that's crazy. I, that's what I heard. I'll tell you on a, on a, on a very personal level. So Leah's cousin, I may have mentioned this even last week, Leah's cousin, uh, she and her husband are Chabad uh, Shluchim in, uh, near Kiev, or Kiev, as it's pronounced, where, which, we're, which we're all learning. We're all you know, learning uh, things. So um, they left, beginning of last week, toward the beginning of the war, they left. And they got to Israel, and he went back. He flew back, or I don't know, he made his way back to Ukraine to help more people get out. Because he knew, knows the route, he knows how to get out, he did it, he's done it, and he went back in, which is a, a, a just an, a, a num- I'm not, you know, I, I, like Fred said, not everyone is a, is a, is a, is a woodchopper. That's, um, that's in a very extreme situation. To go back, you're safe and you go back in? He left his family, he left his wife and kids? That's, that's next level, that's next level. And, and, and somebody might say, somebody, I could see somebody criticizing that, how do you do that? And I, I get that, and, but this, he feels like he can help, and he's there. I'll tell you a story of the Kazakh horses. Okay, I, f- I feel like I want to say this right now. So the Reb Mendel Futterfass was a Chabad chassid who lived in the last, he, lived, uh, he passed away a few decades, passed away not that long ago. He was one of the uh, rab- a Chabad rabbi, a chassid, who helped, who was teaching in, in, in Soviet, Soviet, uh, communist Russia, in the Soviet era, and the Soviets, basically, they arrested him for his counter-revolutionary activities, and they threw him in Siberia. And in Siberia, most people never made it out. The, the conditions were brutal, forced labor, and it just broke people's spirits, bodies, you know, everything. Everything was broken. Anyway, this guy survived after a, a decade or two in Siberia. He survived. He went to England and Israel. He used to come to America and Fabreng, and, and this guy was the happiest guy. You never met a happier guy. Mm. This guy, mental foot of us, never met a happier guy. A guy who always was smiling, even in Siberia. He came out with stories you wouldn't believe. Here's one story. There was once, a, a, there was, he was in Siberia, and there was this, other, this Russian guy, who, and they're all Russian, crying. He's crying. He's crying at night. One night he's crying. He says, what's wrong? He says, my horse. I miss my horse. <laughs> Mendel's like, you miss your horse? Like, what's, what's with your horse? He's like, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. He, this guy was a Kazakh. You know what yeah, a Kazakh? Yeah, that's all, yeah. Kazakh. A yeah. Kazakh's horse. He's like, you don't know. A Kazakh and his horse. It's like it's a match made in heaven. A Kazakh's horse. He says, you don't understand these Kazakh horses. How do we get the Kazakh horses? He says, everyone says, you tell me how. He says, we used to take, our, we take existing horses and, 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 and ride out into the middle of nowhere. 
to the forest, wilderness, whatever, and find a pack of wild horses, the most wild, unbridled, untamed horses we could find. Then we would drive these horses into the river, into a very raging river, and most of the horses would drown. They, they were weak, or they were strong, they were young, or whatever it was. They would drown, and the ra- it was a raging river, and they drove the horses into the river, and most drowned. Only the strongest horses survived, made it to the other side, were able to get, make it through the other side. And then he tells Rabendo, but that's not what a ha- Kazakh horse was. The Kazakh horse was not the one that made it to the other side. It was the one that made it to the other side, and then went back into the river to pull out other horses. That was a Kazakh horse. Remendel came out, and he told the stories. The story of, if you, if you know the stories, this tightrope walker and the pickpocket and the Kazakh horse story. I didn't tell you the other two stories tonight, just the, just the horse story. <coughs> My friends, what is a hero? What is a Kazakh horse? Not someone who makes it out safely, but the one who goes back in to help others get out safely. Okay, that's a lesson in life. When I, I got an email today, somebody sent me an email from someone, they know an artist in Ukraine, who she, uh, he or she, I don't remember what, anyway, so he or she writes that there are three reactions in war. One is fight, second is run, and the third is freeze. This person writes about themselves, our reaction was freeze. They just stayed. They didn't know what to do. Now they're running. Um, but anyway, the question is, what do we do, right? Do we freeze? Do we look to save ourselves? Do we go back and help others? It's a very, it's a very, it's a, no judgment. It's not a judgmental question. It's a, it's a, it's a fabring. We're fabring now. It's a fabring question. By the way, I mentioned the pickpocket story. The <laughs> unbelievable. The um, so Remendel, he was in he was in Siberia. A lo- lots of colorful characters were in Siberia as well. It wasn't just Jewish uh, Torah scholars and teachers. It was everybody. It was intellectuals and scientists and any anyone who was who the communists didn't like. Anyway, there was a group of um, of people there. They were like petty criminals and pickpockets and thieves and whatever it is. And every day, they used to have, every night, they used to have a game of cards. Now, the, the guards, the Siberian guards, they didn't like anyone having fun. It was like the NFL a few years ago where if you celebrate in the end zone, you would get flagged. Now they encourage it. Anyway, but they, they didn't want anyone having fun, and that included playing cards. So you couldn't play cards. It was illegal to play cards in, your, in Siberia. And um, what was amazing is every night, this, this group of people, would play cards, or Mendel would see them playing cards. And then the, the guards would bust in, unannounced, and they would do a search, a thorough search, and they would never find the cards. They would never find the cards. One night, Remendel said, he's going to be there, and he's going to watch and try to figure it out. You ever have that where you're watching a magic show, and you're like, I'm going to figure this out. I do that all the time. I'm like, I, I'm like so ant... I'm, I'm no fun. I like will Google a trick to try to figure out. And they're like, oh, why did I Google it? You know, it's great when you f- see a trick and then you Google it and someone's selling it. And you're like, oh, he's not a mentalist. He just bought it for 50 bucks or $500. I was like, ah, oh, it's not really a mentalist. Oh, I thought he had powers to know what I wrote down on my piece of paper. But turns out you can buy that somehow. So what happened to the mentalist? Okay, all right, I guess it's not real. Anyway, so he's like, I'm going to figure this out. So he's paying attention, he's watching. There's a pack of cards. The guards come in. They turn over the place. Nothing. Nothing, no cards. And then as soon as the guards leave, the cards come back out. So he says to one of the guys, they trust him at that point. He's like, just please tell me. Like, what the, how do you do it? He said, the guards check everywhere, except for one place. Their own pockets. We take the pack of cards. 
We put it in the guard's pocket. We put it in the guard's pack back pocket. He searches, and on the way out, boop, got it. I love it. <laughs> My friends, but every story that he told always had a lesson in divine service. Yeah, what's the lesson? We're always looking around. We're always looking around, yeah, for the stuff. It's in our back pocket, right? The stuff that we have to work on, it's, it's not there. It's not, the contraband is not there. It's not out there. It's in our back pockets. L'chaim. All right, friends, that's what a Fabrengan sounds like. Friends, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for being part of it. And uh, don't forget to check your pockets on your way, uh, on your way out. All right, we'll see you all. Have a good night. Laila Tov. See you guys soon. Take care, everybody. No, Monday. Monday. I'm, oh, I'm What's Monday? What's Monday? Monday's class. I'm not going to be here.